Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we are excited to have a special guest with us today on the phone, Landis Carey. Landis, how are you? Hi there, I'm good. Landis is calling in from New Jersey, so we're excited to have you on the Project Purple Podcast to share your story of inspiration. And for our listeners at home, Landis and I were introduced by, um, if you're a follower of Project Purple, of a team that's been with us multiple times in the New York City area, Team Alex, and a good friend of mine who has kind of been the ringleader, one of the ringleaders, I should say, uh, Michael Panincy. I know you know Michael and Ben Garrison. Ben's ran for us a couple times. And so we were introduced. Landis, you actually attended our, we met, you and I met in person at the New York City mm-hmm. Marathon. Yeah, it was at your, um, the after party at... Tanner Smith's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah That was this past uh, 2018, right? It was. It was back in November. Um, and I... That day was just magical. Um, I had these friends, Michael, Tanisi, and Ben Garrison running um, in the marathon. And um, I knew they were running and raising money for pancreatic cancer. And the day was so poignant, actually, for me. And I don't know if I ever shared this story with you because no. it was a very quick interaction when we when we met. Um, I the, the morning of the marathon, I wasn't sure if I was going to go. I hadn't gone into the city by myself since my entire journey down this cancer road. Um, I was still post surgery, and um, I had. I had woken up that morning and it was beautiful. And I went downstairs and said, Ed, my husband, I'm going to the marathon. I'm going to cheer my lungs out. I'm going to just cheer for all the runners. I can't wait to, to catch the energy. It's going to be amazing. And I knew that Michael and um, Ben were running. And I had remembered learning that they were running and raising money for this cause um, when I was actually in the hospital post-surgery. So... The fact that I was able to be there the day of the run, because I never thought I would be able to, was really impressive upon me um, in terms of just my, I was so grateful. I was so grateful to be there that day. Um, well, it's such a, you, it's such an amazing circumstance or happenstance, um, you know, in terms of connections, right? And so Ben and Michael, were part of or are part of Team Alex, which I, I don't know if you know the backstory around that is uh, it's got to be five, almost five years ago, a group of high school friends had lost one of their high school buddies, really good friend uh, from to pancreatic cancer named Alex. And they just have rallied around us and have raised thousands of dollars since the inception with Project Purple, but consistently year after year, um, there's a there's probably like eight. I've got to say, there's eight to twelve runners, and there might be more because I know last year I think or the year prior one of the runners, his dad actually ran with us, which was so crazy because he had watched his son complete the marathon the year before as part of Team Alex, and you know Mike's been a big part of it. There's a, there's two other ladies. Allison and Colleen that have also been a big part of it as well that they were kind of like I call them the triad of team Alex and Ben has been really um, 
involved. There's another lady who is in the real estate business, Tracy, who's who's been really mm-hmm. active lately. I think you know Tracy as well. Yep. And so it's just been so wild and amazing to see this group of kids because they're younger than me, so I can call them kids, uh, really rally around, you know, this friend of theirs that had passed. But then now to see this Landis, and I remember Mike emailing me and contacting me when I think you were diagnosed and said, hey, there's someone Mm -hmm. that, you know, we're really close to that just was really recently diagnosed and is fairly, very young. Um, You know, is there any assistance? And I I think we provided uh, Mike with some resources and, and stuff like that. And just to see this all come full circle is just really wild. So that's where before we got on the, the line here and recording, I said, you know, this is really amazing to see the connections that have happened and how they kind of work its way into all of this. Mm-hmm. So Landis, for our listeners at home, why don't we back up a little bit and sure. talk about your experience with pancreatic cancer? Like when were you diagnosed? What was life like before? And then we can kind of catch up to the New York City Marathon sure. and then take it from there. Um, it's actually quite a compacted period of time between uh, my diagnosis and the marathon. Um, so it was back in um, March of last year that I I had no symptoms. I had nothing wrong with me in the sense of the everyday. I was playing tennis four times a week. I was doing Pilates and running and I was, you know, very active. I was working. I have three very young children. Um, and I was managing my day-to-day life. Um, and back in March of last year, I, I crawled into bed one night and my husband was in bed reading and I, I looked at him and I said, I have cancer. And he said, what are you talking about? And I was like, no, 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 I think I have cancer. I was like, I don't know where this is coming from. I haven't thought this before. The words are just coming out of my mouth. Um, and he was like, Landis, you better stop reading Facebook. <laughs> and I was like, babe, I'm not reading Facebook. Like, I don't know where this is coming from. Like, this is something different. I'm like, you're totally right. Like, this is this doesn't sound like it. like it could be real. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I just... Like kind of shut, I just shut the door on whatever message my body was trying to send me in that moment. And because um, I had thought to myself, well, what am I going to do? Walk into my doctor who, you know, I've seen for the past few years and gotten clean, you know, yearly physicals. And she's going to be like, the psych ward is down the hall. You know, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> you know, she's going to dismiss me. Because uh, this sounds crazy. Um but then about four weeks later, no, maybe it was more like six weeks later because it was sometime early June. Wait, what does that put us? If we're at the end of March, April, May. No, it had to have been like eight, eight weeks, ten weeks later. I was waking up from a nap, and it was one of the first Sundays that I hadn't worked in a while. I was working as a realtor, um, and, you know, your weeks are very busy, your weekends are very busy, and... I just did not have to work that Sunday, and I was really relieved. I was really tired, and um, I took this just delicious afternoon nap. Um, I woke up, and I was, like, kind of coming out of my sleep, and I, my hand was on my abdomen. I was laying on my side, 
And I had this voice in my head say to me, okay, Landis, now that work has slowed down, it's time to deal with this. As my hand is feeling this kind of hard lump in my abdomen, and my brain filled in after the dot, 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 the word cancer. Like the voice didn't tell me it was cancer, but my brain filled that in. Um, and I was like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> What's going on here? Like, I cannot, what is, I don't know what this is happening. Like, you know, and so I got up from the nap. I went about my day. It was a Sunday. I wasn't going to be able to make a doctor's appointment anyways. But then that next morning, Monday morning, I was getting dressed to take my, my two boys to school. And, um, and again, the voice, I heard it again. And it said the same thing. I was in the middle of getting dressed and I was like, fine, I'll make an appointment. I'll make an appointment and I'm going to go in. And I was like, I wanted to systematically go through the process of having a yearly physical done, doing the blood work. I kind of wanted to see if anything would be revealed. And I think in a way I was testing my doctors to see if they were going to come back to me with anything more than I probably already knew. Because I think I knew by that point that there was something seriously wrong. Even though I was, I had no physical symptoms, I was still as energetic and as, you know, effective in my daily life. I had, I had no complaints. Um, and so I went to the, in early June, I went to the doctor, they did the blood work, everything came back perfectly fine. My doctor in, in you know, the consultation, she said, you know, everything looks great. You look great. How are you doing? What's going on? And I was like, you know, it's been kind of a, it's been a good year. I was like, I did, you know, I think I've had some trouble just with my immune system. Um, but then again, I have three little kids. At the time, my children were one, four, and six. Um, and I was like, I got the flu. I had a fever for 18 days after that. I had a sinus infection, and then I had all the spring allergies. Um, and I'm like, but I'm finally kind of feeling better. And she's like, well, that all sounds totally normal. Like, you know, what else is going on? Da, da, da. And as she's walking out the door, I say, wait, wait, come back here. Wait, I want you to feel this, this thing in my stomach that I, I, I think I want you to check out. And she felt it. And she's like, oh, okay, well, you know, have you, um, have you been, I'm just going to use, you know, the word she used. She's like, have you been constipated? Have you been having trouble going to the bathroom? And I said, no, not at all. Um, she's like, okay, well, it could be school that I feel. It could be something else. It could be nothing. She's like, I don't know. She's like, well, what do you, she looks at me and she goes, what do you want to do? And I was like, what do you mean? What do I want to do? I want to know what it is. And, um, and she's like, okay, well, we can do a CAT scan or we can do an ultrasound. And I was like, okay, well, can you tell me which one is more definitive? Because I don't want to go down the road of, um, you know, having to do multiple tests to figure out that something is even there, right? Um, so we decided to do the CT scan, and it had um, the dye contrast through the, through the veins yeah. and, um, you know, where you drink the barium solution mm -hmm. and everything. And um, there was something there. And... Um, and I asked her, I said, look, like, tell me, like, if, 
all of my blood work says I'm fine, could I still have cancer? And she said, yes, you could still have cancer. We don't do blood work to reflect whether you have cancer. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because <laughs> part of me had thought, I, I think part of me had thought that if my blood work and my yearly physicals were fine, that I was totally healthy. I mean, at the time of my diagnosis, I was 37 years old and, um, you know, in really good health from the outside, you know, looking in. And um, and so we found, so I had my, my CT scan on like a Wednesday morning. Um, she called me about 45 minutes after my CT scan was complete to tell me that there was something in my abdomen. Um, and this is kind of the beauty of working with the doctor group that I, I work with out here in New Jersey. They have basically all of this capability under the same roof. And so they're able to just find out the results and send you to the specialist very quickly. So, um, you know, I was, a, I was a nervous wreck when she called and told me that there was something there. And I was like, okay, this is, this is, it's time now to deal with cancer. And I just knew it. I just, I just knew. And so we went back um, that afternoon, actually, and met with a, um, a GI person. And then um, he did an endoscopy the next morning with a biopsy. Um, so that was Thursday. And that was just like the end of June leading into the 4th of July weekend, that, that time period. So he was like, you know, we had, um, they had someone as, uh, someone reviewing the slides or, or the, the tissue as it was being biopsied mm-hmm. um, there on site. And they said, look, it's not lymphoma. It's not anything that this person has seen before. So we're going to need to do some deeper analysis of this. And I said, okay, <laughs> you know, you want your answers and you want your answers yesterday. Um, and so it took them four business days to identify. They called us on July 3rd to tell us that it was neuroendocrine. They, they called it, he said, you have a neuroendocrine neoplasm. And I'm like, oh, what is that? <laughs> you know? And I, because the word cancer wasn't used, I actually didn't understand that in fact, it was cancer, and I didn't understand that for a very long time, which is maybe my my mind's way of protecting me um, mm-hmm. from not just collapsing in a heap of fear because I have these tiny little kids that I need to take care of, and, um, you know, it was, it was a very traumatic experience when you, when you learn um, that you do have cancer. Um, so in a way, I was glad that I, I didn't absorb that information for a while because it allowed me to go about my business for the next three weeks. And um, I'll kind of, I'll get back to that piece of like when I actually learned that I had cancer in a minute. But, um, Landis, I, like, I want to okay. jump, jump in here for a quick second. Sure. Though. So, I mean, I think something that you just said, though, is so powerful, though, and a lot that I've been taking notes here. I mean... So life is, with having three kids, first of all, I commend you and your husband for yeah. doing that because that's crazy. <laughs> I have two. Uh, they're a lot older, but still, that's still nuts. Um, so, I mean, life goes on, right? Like, as you know, and, yeah. and I think maybe our listeners yeah. at home can relate to this as 
as parents, like we don't worry necessarily about ourselves, right? We're worried about our children and making sure our children are safe. And when you have young kids, like, are they developing correctly? You know, are they adjusting at school? Are they advancing as they should normally? And are they fine and healthy? And I think a lot of times parents forget about themselves. And so like symptomatically, like you were just kind of going through that grind, right? Like every day. And like yeah. not necessarily noticing anything that was any different other than, you know, the, the, as you said, the fever, the sinus infection, kind of these things that were kind of somewhat normal, but maybe not normal, I guess, to look back. Have you looked back at that time frame and said, oh, maybe that was kind of like, you mentioned like your immune system being beat up, but has that been anything in the terms of maybe that was kind of the precursor or maybe that was because you had this neuroendocrine tumor growing inside of you that maybe that kind of compromised your immune system a little bit in terms of just your body overworking itself possibly. Yeah. You know, I, it, I, I wonder those things too, and I haven't really gotten clear answers, um, but medically from that, one doctor said that with neuroendocrine, it doesn't necessarily affect the immune system as much as other cancers. Um, but my surgeon, you know, um, he suggested to me that it's possible I've had this thing, you know, maybe around 10 years. Yeah. So it's not, it wasn't like it just came about. It was, but at some point the the cancer had changed and maybe it was picking up in speed and that's like, and that's, those are the signals that my body was giving to me. Um, and maybe that was also compromising my immune system, or maybe it was truly my day-to-day life. I wasn't eating very well. I wasn't taking any supplements. I wasn't managing my stress. So my, I, when I was exercising, I, you know, looking back on it now, it wasn't in a, in a supportive direction in, in terms of achieving better wellness. It was actually just to kind of manage that top line stress. And I think if I look back on it, and I, and I have a lot, and I'm very honest with myself now, I, I don't think that I was as healthy as I thought I was. I mean, I, you know, by all intents and purposes, what are, you know, what are our gauges? Like, right, I haven't gained weight. I still fit into my clothes. Like, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm still walking around and taking care of everything, but I did feel really deeply tired. And I mean, I do have three children. I was working. Um, so there's, you know, I was putting a lot on myself. I'm not going to blame myself, but no. I do think that I probably compromised my, um, my wellness a bit. Um, I think hind- so. hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? And I think it's it's hard. Yeah. And I think the other thing too is human nature. And and this is important lesson for for you, Landis. That I'll I'll give a bit of advice here is like I, I think we always look for answers for why, mm-hmm. and sometimes we just don't know. And I think science doesn't know. And I think the one thing though that I commend you on, and going back to what you originally said, was like, hey, you you were sitting in bed with your husband, and you said, yeah, I think I have cancer. Like everyone knows their body and this is something, I mean, this is probably going to be in the 50s in terms of our podcast and the amount of survivors and fighters that we've had. They've all said something that's so powerful. So for our listeners at home and also for you to not uh, 
I wouldn't say beat yourself up to try to find the answer, but you know your body best, right? And everyone knows their body best. So if there is something that you feel is not right, just like you did, like, yeah, you advocated for yourself. You have to, you have to with this disease and with so many other diseases is you have to advocate for yourself. And if you don't feel right, you go to the doctor. But the other thing too, just from hearing you talk you know, I think life, as we said, is just like crazy, right? Like you have, whether it's two kids, one kid, three kids, four, five, six, seven, keep going. It's all, life is, is, is what you make of it. And sometimes it, we all get caught up in that, you know, just being run down. And, and I think you really have to take a step back and, you know, think about yourself. So um, don't beat yourself up, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And, and hindsight is always 2020, right? And I think we always do try to find the reasons for why certain things happen. And I think, you know, we'll get there with this disease, but we're just not there right now. You know, science, you know, we're just not good enough. And that's the question that, you know, why I ask, like, you know, uh, kind of some of these questions, because it's interesting to hear your story in terms of how you went through this initial journey to to getting that diagnosis, which is so different from so many other people, but also could be similar to people listening at home. So thank you. You know, I, I have thought a lot about the hindsight and the 2020, just to stand upon your point there for, for your listeners, because, you know, I think it is important to reflect back. I mean, not to place blame, but there's so much that we can learn in in ways of what maybe we were doing that wasn't supportive, right, for ourselves or for whomever that, that we're trying to benefit or whatever the question is. But there's so much to be learned there and in, in a non-judgmental way, right? Um, now I, you know, if I've had a long week and I start to recognize that feeling of fatigue, like I kind of just shut down and I clear my calendar, I cancel things, and I just say, you know what, I'm going to go take a nap and I'm going to read the rest of the afternoon. And, you know, I have our sitter watch the kids and that's it. Like, that's just where, you know, that's where I am today. Um, but, you know, without being hard on yourself, and that's not going to help anybody. Um, but there are so many lessons to be learned, I think, in that self-analysis. Right? Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, like, not enough people I know don't take those timeouts for yourself, right? You have to take time. I mean, that's just, you, you said something too before that I'll just bring up here as well is exercise for you, not for stress relief. And I, when you right. said that, I was like, oh my God, like I say that all the time, like running is my thing because I can clear my head. Like that should not be the thing to clear my head. Like right. it should be like thoughtful meditation in the morning when you wake up, you know, like that first 10 minutes or at night before you go to bed, you know, or maybe yeah. during the day, whenever you can fit it in to clear your head or to clear out that stress, it shouldn't be Absolutely. the vice to say, hey, I work out because I'm stressed out, right? Like that's so yeah. that's so contradictory because like how does that help anything? So I think that's something well, so and it powerful. it can perpetuate, you know, it can perpetuate, I think, bad behaviors, right? Yeah. It becomes addictive. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just think No, no, that's absolutely on point. Yeah, you're right on point because then bad behaviors, like people like, like uh, there's a handful of people that I know that we're talking about this, that that it's like, oh, I, I'm stressed out. I got to run. And then it becomes like, it's like a second job. Like it, it, it becomes, 
their daily thing is they have to get that run in. Like it, it's almost like guilt. Like you guilt yourself into like if you don't right. run, then you're gonna be stressed, which right. is worse right. than actually running. You know, it, it's just so contradictory to it. So that's so fascinating that you brought that up, and I appreciate you saying that. And I think the timeout thing, you know, my term in terms of timing out, but that's so powerful because. Your inbox is always going to be full is what I always I, – one of my sayings that I say, right? So <laughs> yeah, regardless, of, regardless of all that crap that's in your life this afternoon, like if you don't get to it, guess what? It's going to be there tomorrow. But would you rather right. tackle that rested mentally and physically or would you rather go after it and have the effects of being like run ragged, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so powerful um, that – you brought that up. It, it, it took cancer, I think, to teach me that lesson. I've always been the one to overcommit, not commit enough time to myself. And this was it. I mean, this is, you know, no more. <laughs> well, so. It's it's a powerful lesson. And so for our listeners at home, I mean, like, yeah, you had to go through this experience. But there's plenty of listeners on the phone that should heed the warning, you know. Take a time out. Like, don't wait until something like this happens to you. So going back to um, you get the diagnosis in July. Mm-hmm. And you said in the beginning, and per my notes, it was a neuroendocrine. It was a, it was a neuroendocrine neoplasm. Neoplasm. Okay. Which neoplasm, I think, look, I have to be honest with you. Like, I, I, I got the diagnosis. I got, you know, all of the information. But I did not, I am like not an expert on any of the, anything about the type of cancer that I had because I like, I did not allow myself to Google. I didn't allow myself to become, I didn't want to become obsessed with the problem. I wanted to find the solution. I knew I wanted to find the the solution in terms of my life moving forward, but I didn't want to know too much about it. So the word neoplasm, and if I'm wrong about this, I'm so sorry, I think that it just means tumor. I think it's just, it's not a synonym. Um, but like I said, I don't know. So, but I didn't know what neuroendocrine was either. And maybe it's best that they said neuroendocrine neoplasm and said neuroendocrine cancer. Because, um, it saved me a lot of heartache for a couple of weeks. But I called a friend of mine shortly after I received the um, pathology report. And he's, um, he's a surgeon here at our local hospital, and um, he's a vascular surgeon. And I called him and I said, um, you know, Steve, I've, I have this, this neuroendocrine thing in my abdomen. I think it's off my pancreas. And he got so angry. And he was like, how dare they give you such a diagnosis without a biopsy? <sighs> and... And I and in that moment I was like, oh no, this is like really serious. <laughs> yeah. And 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 I was like, but no, I, I was like, I had a biopsy. I was just waiting to call you until I knew what it was. And he was like, and then in that moment, like I could just feel like his energy drop. You know, he was like, um, okay. He was like, um, he was like, well, we need to find you a surgeon. We need to find you a surgeon really fast. And we need to, I want you to, you know, we're going to focus on a couple of different groups. He's like, let me call the guy here at my hospital. 
who would do the procedure if it's off the head of your pancreas? Because um, I told him where it was, and I sent him the information. I sent him my um, the pathology report and the CT report and all of that. And so he was able to get a recommendation from the surgeon at his hospital um, at MSK. Basically, he got a referral for me in that sense. Um, and so that was um, July. That was like a, that was like the Wednesday before the Fourth of July. Mm-hmm. And somehow I met with my surgeon that following Tuesday. Um, so it was very quick and. Uh, I met with uh, Dr. Jarnigan at at MSK, and um, you know, I I thinking back on it, I'm sure he was like, "This poor woman has no idea what's going on," because he was like, he was like, "Now, ma'am, he was like, you have a neuroendocrine tumor off your pancreas," <laughs> and I was like, "Okay," you know. And he started describing to me this surgery that seemed like crazy to me. I was like, what do you, like, I was like, oh, I was like, that's a lot. You're going to take, you know, the head of my pancreas. You're going to take my gallbladder and you're going to do what? Like, what is this? Why are, what's going on here? And, um, and I was like, okay. Like, and in my mind then it was like, do I need this surgery in order to deal with this? Or can we just take out the tumor and like, kind of be fine, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I called my friend the next morning after meeting with Dr. Jernigan and Dr. Jernigan had presented to me the solution being the Whipple. And, um, and I, and I called my friend the next morning and I said, you know, Hey, you know, is this surgery an overkill? Like, is this crazy to do this just for this? You know, so clearly I didn't, I didn't have a grasp on what I was dealing with. And, um, and he said, yes, you know, yes, Landis, let me be very clear with you. <laughs> you know, you're going to see a couple more doctors, and if they agree, all agree that this is the solution, then that's what's going to happen. Um, he was like, let me, you know, tell you a little bit more about, you know, the neuroendocrine. And, and he shared with me um, and a story that he knew of, and it kind of put it into perspective a little bit more. But I still didn't understand that I had cancer. I was still... People were like, what's going on with you? You know, and I was like, I have this thing off my pancreas, and I have to have this really expensive surgery, but I don't think it's cancer. I think it's, like, pre-cancer, but, I, like, I just, I, I was totally confused. Um, and I think that that's what's so hard about these situations is that it's complete, they're completely upending. It's shocking. And, you know, once you understand your full diagnosis, you're in complete horror of the situation. And um, recovering from those emotions, right, is, I think, so much of the battle that cancer patients have to actually go through. Because you have to get through that before you can even start to think about healing, right? Because if you keep going back to those emotions, they're just debilitating. At least for me, they were once I understood the full breadth of what I was going through. Um, so was it, I, you know, I, can I just ahead. jump in? So I, what, I mean, was your husband with you during this, these appointments or were you by yourself? <laughs> no, he was. We were both, he was taking notes Yeah. and he was asking the questions and he had a lot of the information. I, 
And, and I'll tell you kind of where he chimed in later, but um, it was after I learned that I had the cancer, he was, he said, well, Landa, we're at a cancer hospital. Like, what do you think we're doing here? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, you know. And I'm, like, laughing. And then I start just, like, sobbing, right? And I sobbed for, like, three days. Um, but so we ended up getting the same day, the same, you know, we were presented with a surgical solution two other times by two different doctors. Um, and, you know, we weren't told that there's any there was any chemotherapy to take before the surgery or any radiation to do before the surgery. That the surgery, all of the surgeons we talked to said that they felt it was going to be curative because my initial diagnosis had been um, a low grade neuroendocrine tumor, and so low grade indicates you know it has a, a low replication rate um, mm-hmm. and. They thought it was less aggressive than it actually ended up being. Um, so we ended up going with Dr. Jernigan from from Memorial Sloan Kettering, and um, I had the surgery at the end of July. So it was just a few weeks later after I had met with him that we scheduled the surgery. Um, and in my pre-surgical appointment, the week before my surgery, is when I found out that I had cancer. That's when the cancer word came came out finally. Because I, I had said to Dr. Jarn again, I had had the CT done a couple of days before and they were, I, and I said to him, like, Dr. Jarn again, like, did you look at the area around the tumor? Do you see any cancer there? Has it spread? And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, wait, what? I mean, he was like completely taken aback by my misunderstanding of the situation. Hmm. And he goes, Landis, the whole thing is cancer. And I said, like, I could not even, I, I, I was just, when he said that, everything shut down. And just everything, I, I, I was not able to listen any further. I wasn't able to comprehend anything further. I, and, and so within a week, I was, you know, I had had I had the surgery. I um, between the time of um, the word cancer being said and my surgery, I reached out to my community and I told them what was going on. I have an incredibly strong network in the area where we live, and I just I sent out an email that was you know full of humor and also you know just crushing all at the same time and I sent it to you know several hundred people in our community who I you know have interaction with and who are you know families who we socialize with or clients or whomever you know just everybody my my um my colleagues and I just said guys this is what's going on like I'm going to need your help I'm going to need your help like feeding my family I'm going to be in the hospital for a week my mom is coming um but I'm going to need help because it's going to be, you know, eight weeks or so after surgery that I'm going to finally be able to get back to, you know, helping to take care of these people. And I've always been the one who does everything. So I felt as though when I'm preparing for to leave for this hospital stay, which was going to be about a week, um, I was, you know, putting in place a support system to replace me. And that's terrifying. You know, that was absolutely terrifying because I'm thinking, what if I don't come back? What if this is this is it? You know, it was it was so emotional. And as you're telling people what's ha- 
what what your story is and your situation and, and your diagnosis and everyone wants to know what the prognosis is and blah, blah, blah. Everybody out there, most people, I would say, all have some kind of experience with cancer. And whether it's they know a friend or they have a husband or their brother-in-law or whoever, you know, some fought and, and they're, you know, they're better now and they're in remission and they have been for 25 years or, you know, some, you know, lost their loved ones. Everybody carries these preconceived notions and um, this emotional baggage, these traumas with them that, unfortunately, they, they don't mean to do it because they're, they're coming to you in the best possible way to help you and, and to, um, you know, support you. But everybody has these experiences, and they're looking at your situation through their lens, right, of, of experience. And um, that was really hard, to be honest, um, because I was like, I'm coming back. I'm not going to die. This is just something I have to deal with. And I just have to, I had to keep telling myself that. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come over from the hospital. I'm going to recover, and I'm going to be fine. And, um, you know, you can just hear people's anxieties, and, um, and you know what they're feeling, and it's hard. I think it's hard to navigate that um, on both sides. Leaving for the hospital, you know, knowing that my family was taken care of and that um, food was coming and they would be fed and my mom was here uh, and our au pair was here was, you know, I was so grateful. I knew that they would be fine. I just knew that I wanted to come home to them. And I knew that when I came home to them, it would be very different. Um, and so uh, I just had to surrender to the situation, and I had to pragmatically uh, put one foot in front of the other that day that I, I drove off in an Uber from my house out in New Jersey to go to the Upper East Side to have this, you know, bizarre surgery that I still think the word, like, the term the Whipple is just, it's a silly name. <laughs> it's not okay for me to say. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I had I had the Whipple, like the Whipple, like it's <laughs> like it sounds like it's a joke. You know? <laughs> like, well, yeah, I, I think yeah, um, it's uh, it's it's very. I, I think it's it, so it's it's named after the person who performed right. the first one, but yeah, first, it's it's a right, really strange name, and for those who have mm-hmm. gone through that, um, but so I, I wanted to jump in here and just ask you a question. Sure. So when you said that you had, you know, announced to your community, your tribe, your group of friends, yeah. that you had this yeah. going on. And I think it's almost like life, right? Everyone has an opinion. So were there certain things, like you said, it really hit you. Were there were there certain friends at that time or certain acquaintances where you were like, hey, you need a timeout. Like, I can't talk to you because, like, I need to focus on, like, my my task at hand and my, my plight in terms of what I'm going through. So did you do things or did that occur at any time maybe? No, you know, actually everyone was like beyond supportive. I just, I, I think I'm very, I'm very sensitive yeah. and I know that I can feel people's anxieties through their communications, whether it's emails, text messages, voicemail. And I think that everyone was 
very shocked by the situation. And I think it was terrifying in a way because I'm this young mom of three very young children. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not young in the sense I'm, I was 37, but I have this young family. And, um, and I think that they looked at it and they were terrified for my children and for the situation. Um, we had had, in the past few years, we've had a couple, two or three um, parents pass away suddenly in our community. And it's been traumatic, I think, for the community as a whole. And I think that they were very fearful that this was going to become another one of those situations. Um, and so there was never a moment where it ever became uh, anyone crossed any lines. It was more just I knew I needed to protect myself, and I knew I needed to understand their anxiety because it was their experience. Mm-hmm. But that's not my experience. And so, and as actually I'm telling you this story, I'm you know I'm holding one hand out away, right, and I'm holding one hand towards me to kind of indicate that. That those are those emotions, but they're not mine, you know. And I had to very quickly learn the difference um, and not to pick up on other people's negative experiences um, with cancer because I knew mine needed to be different and I knew it would be different. Um, and I believed that. And with my intuition that had originally told me I had cancer, I felt that. It was something I had to deal with, and even in the words, right, you know, now that work has calmed down, it's time to deal with this. It wasn't time to die from this. It was time to deal with this. And so, um, you know, I, I very quickly learned that it was a, I had to create a barrier, right, of protection. And I, I, I guess there was one situation where I knew that there was, you know, um, some of the emotions had crossed the boundary and I knew that I had to pull myself back from that. Um, so were there I never things... had to make any changes. Oh, go ahead. No, no. Were there, what kind of strategies did you use for that? That maybe our audience, there might be someone at home listening yeah, and kind of going course. through that same thing. So I'd love to share some of those strategies if you could. Of course. Um, first of all, I would immediately recognize the point of view that they had of of cancer, I would have to go, you know, into my memory bank and think, okay, what what is their situation? Do they have a family member that I know of that had cancer? Sometimes I ask them. I said, hey, you know, what is your experience with this? Like, you know, and they tell me about their brother-in-law or their husband or whatever. And I say, hey, did they ever? Do you do you know of any resources that blah 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 blah? You know, I would ask them questions and I would try to understand where they were coming from. Yeah, and in a way to frame it so that I knew that that wasn't mine, right? Like, I can push that aside and I can say, thank you so much, like, you know, and this is internally, like, thank you so much, but, like, I'm just going to leave that over there because I'm not going to take that with me. Yeah. Um, and I would try to get to the core of understanding their, their perception of it. Um, and... The other thing that I would do is um, if I was starting to feel anxious about just even communicating with someone, I would honestly just like jump off the phone or I would be like, oh, I got to go. You know what? And I just made excuses. <laughs> I 
would just be like, I, but even to this day, like I opt out of a lot. Um, mostly because I'm just trying to simplify my time commitments. Um, I don't want to overwhelm myself, but also because um, it's hard to go to a party, for example, um, because there's a lot of people there who are very, they're all very happy that I'm, that I'm, you know, I've gotten clean cat scans recently and that things are good, you know, they're happy about that. Um, but they still carry with them that baggage. And so I've just had to protect myself more emotionally. Um, and I think just always recognizing that people come to conversations with different points of view and different personal experiences, but understanding that that does not have to be your experience and it does not have to be your point of view. So powerful that you just said that. And I think something that I just heard you say that I'm going to put in my own words is saying no. And we say yes to so many things, right? And that's something that, and there's books written on that and a lot of the self-help guides. And in, in if you actually read a lot of unrelated to cancer here, but people that are hugely successful in this world for a variety of industries, real estate, tech, charity, one of the biggest things that you hear, or one of, one of the things that you hear from all of them is they learn how to say no. Right. And it's so powerful. And I think, you know, for you, it's a form of protection and mental health. Right. And but also for our audience listening at home is like sometimes like you can't do everything and you can't be everywhere. And I was just with a, a survivor recently. Last week. And I'd said to him, I said, you know, sometimes you just stay home, say no, like don't go out to dinner with friends. Um, you know, you know, stay at home and, and, you know, just, uh, sometimes you just have to say no. And it's hard, I think as humans to say no in various capacities, but especially for this, like when you're talking about mental health and also physical health, like you have to say no sometimes, um, to, to those situations and to the noise out there. So it's, it's so powerful hearing you say that. And I commend you for having, the gumption, the courage, and, you know, the fortitude to say no, because that's so important internally and externally to be able to do that, Landis. So thank you for sharing thank that. You. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So you have... Yeah, I think it's been, a, it's been my, it's been a big, it's something I practice on, you know. I, I well, have yeah, to, you, ha- you have to, I mean, you, I think you, you have, have to, to consciously do that, right? Because you can't just like, it's not, in, in, I think it's not inherent in our nature to say no, right? We're always used to saying yes and wanting to help people. And, and for our audience listening at home, I'm not saying like you have to say no to everything, but I think you have to be really selective and pick and choose. Like there's going to be certain times and opportunities where, yeah, you can be in, a, in the right mental state, the right physical state to be able to to say yes to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But I think there's mm-hmm. also the flip side of that is you have to learn to say no because you just can't do everything. You can't. And, and one main, one guide I use in this process, and I've been using more and more, is that voice, right? The voice yeah. that told me I, I was sick. I lean on it to say, okay, what do, I, what do I need in this moment? What do my children need in this moment? What does my family need? And... Sometimes I just have to say, all right, kids, quiet for a minute, go in the basement. Let me just have a a moment just to collect my thoughts so that I know how to move forward. And we sometimes just have these pauses, and I'm like, okay, everyone just pause. Like, we need to just reset. Um, 
um, and really leaning on that inner intuition um, because I think it's so easy to get caught up in that that busy mess right of our society and it's like this competition and busyness who's busier who's achieving more who's crossing more stuff off their to-do list and running around in circles faster um and just opting out and um saying no no to the pressures um and leaning on your, your own voice to understand what is right for you uh, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it's so powerful, and hopefully our listeners are at home. And I think I will go back, and this is the last thing I'll say on this moment, sure. this topic is yeah. that that intra perspective or how you, whether you start your day, end your day, middle of the day, where you listen to yourself and you have that moment. And I think you've expressed and have shared with us those opportunities where that's become critical, you know, for you. And battling this and getting through all this. And I, I think that's so powerful for people listening at home that, you know, might be going through this and to, to have that courage to have that kind of inter perspective on their life and just take a break, take time yeah. and say, yeah. no, like, no, yeah. I, I don't need this like right now, like not, not right now. And that's so powerful. It's so powerful. Maybe next week. Yeah. It's so powerful. <laughs> yeah. So, so you go through surgery at the end of July. You have the Whipple. Yep. You didn't go through any chemotherapy. You're at MSK. No. And then mm-hmm. what happens post? So what 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 was the protocol? I'm sure you were in the hospital for quite some time because the Whipple's a pretty pretty big deal. Um, it's not a yeah. uh, it's not an outpatient type of situation. You're you're probably depending on the situation. Um, sometimes people are in ICU for a day just to make sure everything is flowing correctly and you know, there, there's, it's, 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 it's a big deal. It's an eight-hour surgery, and there's a lot that goes on. Yes, it is a very big deal. And, um, you know, I, I was in the hospital for eight days. Um, they were, they were wonderful. Um, I mean, it was, uh, it was not to sound. I, I'm sure some listeners are going to think that I'm crazy, but it was, it was a complete spiritual journey for me. You know, um, and it was a journey, if you're looking at, you know, Joseph Campbell's hero's hero journey, you know, I was in the belly of the whale, right? And mm-hmm. it's something you have to go through to come out on the other side. And, um, you know, I, it's something that, uh, before I had the surgery, I worked with a number of different professionals. I, was, I felt lucky that I had the, the time I had to prepare for it. Um, everything from physical to mental and spiritual. Um, and I saw um, my therapist before I went to, into the surgery, and she said, okay, Landis, I don't think there's anything that we need, else we need to talk about today, but I want to talk to you about the practicalities of going into the surgery. You know, and, and she gave me the advice that, like, at this point, at, at that point, it was just you have to put one foot in front of the other, and you just have to, you just have to go and you surrender, and you let them do their job. And when you come out of it, that's when you start the next phase of your journey. Um, And I'm so glad she said that to me because I don't know how I would have faced going into the hospital that morning. I wanted to go in very calmly. I didn't want to go in stressed out. I wanted to feel like me. I wanted to feel, 
you know, an easygoing sense. And I wanted to just, um, you know, I wanted to laugh with my husband. I wanted, I didn't want to be fearful. And um, so emotionally addressing those things before I got there was, I think, a huge part of the coming out of the surgery. And, um, and I did spend, I think there you spend a night or 24 hours in ICU, mm-hmm. and they move you up to your hospital room. And they make you walk every day, which was like crazy to me that I was walking the day after my surgery. And it did help so much. It helped so much on a practical level. Um, and, you know, I, I did it two or three times a day. Sometimes I couldn't sleep in the night, and so I would just get up and take the floors and walk in circles. Um, and it, it was... Um, it was a very, it was a very uh, light-filled spiritual experience going through that and being there in the hospital. And it was also a very dark time mm-hmm. um, because it was so physically hard, and it was, it was, it was tough. But you know, the day I walked out, my husband and I, I was dressed in the same thing that I went in, in and I was weighing probably much less already than I did when I went in because I hadn't really eaten since I'd been in the hospital. Um, I had gotten through their, like, protocol of going, you know, from liquids to solids and everything, but my but my digestion wasn't right. You know, I mean, I, I had to heal in order to, you know, to not be having constant diarrhea or, or whatever it was. Um, and I remember walking out of the hospital there on your... First Avenue or York, I don't remember, um, and just hugging my husband and just the tears flowing, you know, just, I can't believe I went through that. <laughs> We're on our way home, okay, let's do this. Um, and we, we went home, um, and the next day, I, I went home and I just, I got in bed and I had not slept well at all in the hospital, I mean, Hospitals are not for sleep. That is, I, I know that clearly. Yeah. I don't think <laughs> um, anyone goes to a hospital looking for sleep. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't go there looking to sleep or truly heal. Um, I went home, I got in my bed, and I I had never been so comfortable. <laughs> yeah. So I, I slept very well. Um, I did wake up the next day, and I was very nauseous the next day, so they brought me back in for a follow-up CT scan. Um, to make sure everything was okay, and um, they put me on some antibiotics, and everything was okay. Um, but going back into MSK the day after coming home was very hard um, because you re-enter that place, right? You want to keep moving forward; you don't want to step backwards. But that was what I learned the whole experience of recovering from the Whipple is all about, and it's about making small progress and then small steps back and small progress. And, I mean, it, it is a very slow, you have to be very patient. I mean, I I was forced into patience, um, and it, it taught me a lot um, about healing and life and um, loving yourself and taking care of yourself and not being hard on yourself. And every day, making sure that you're, you know, doing something that fills you up 
and whether that's reading or listening to a podcast, um, you know, and then resting. And it just took a lot of sleep and a lot of, um, I drank a lot of bone broth. (laughs) I'm kind of done with that now, bone broth. I I don't really ever want to see it again. Um, And then it just slowly got easier, you know. Um, Summer turned into fall and the weather cooled off. And so I started being able to really walk more outside. I was walking every day when I came home. It was the doctor just, my surgeon just kept saying, you have to walk, you have to walk, you need to walk. Oh my God, this guy's crazy. Why is he making me do this? And my mom was here, and she was, you know, on me every day. Have you taken both walks today? You haven't. You've taken a small one. You need to go for a second one. Come on, I'm going to come with you, you know. And um, and I'm so grateful for her and for her persistence in, you know, urging me in those early days because I think self-motivation was very low, at least in my experience. Because um, all you want to do is just kind of hibernate. At least I did. I mean, I was traumatized. I had this big wound in my in my abdomen. I just, I wanted to just be. And I think um, the exercise really helped. Uh, blood flow, um, my breathing. Um, you know, I always came home in a, in a more chipper mood than when I left. And it was just very, very small incremental improvement every day. And then some days I'd wake up and I felt horrible and I would just rest maybe because I walked too far the day before um, or I ate something that didn't agree with me and so my 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 real journey with this experience has been recovery from the ripple that's been the lion's share of my experience with cancer and um, I'm so grateful that I was even able to go through the surgery from what I understand because I caught it early and it hadn't metastasized, it was, it had metastasized to a few lymph nodes, uh, five of them, um, and when we received the pathology report back, we learned that there were some high-grade markers within parts of the tumor, so it kind of put me in this middle ground, um, it was still well differentiated, but it was high-grade, uh, or at least part, part of it was, so it's this kind of middle, middle ground where it's they're a little bit more concerned about reoccurrence, but it's not. It, it, but it's still well differentiated, so it hadn't fully metastasized. Um, so, have you done, and, Landis? Was there conversation after when you get the results about doing chemotherapy or radiation at that point, or what? What no, was the conversation? There hasn't been. Okay. And I was, I was so worried about that because I'm going. What do you mean? There's nothing more for me to do, and um, and so I saw my surgeon, and this was before I had even met with um, uh, Dr. Reedy, who is uh, my oncologist at MSK now. Um, I hadn't even met her yet. And Dr. Jarnigan saying, no, this is, this is the process. I've spoken with Dr. Reedy. Where this, is, this is what we recommend. I said, okay, you know, okay, okay. And then it was sometime in October that I was ready to really address that question. Um, I wasn't strong enough to really question the doctors early on. I just, I needed to heal more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to this point where I started getting really anxious. And um, I 
I got my my surgical report, I got the pathology report, and I like tore it apart like it was like a paper that I was analyzing, right? And I was I was back in grad school and I was like dissecting this paper and learning everything I could. And I was terrified by one of the margins on the surgical report, and I was you know terrified by um, some stuff in the pathology report. So I made this appointment with Dr. Jarnigan to go back in and just have a conversation with him about just a really frank conversation about my case. And I said, okay, look, I'm ready to hear everything now. I understand what I went through. Let's talk. And he said, okay, great. He said, you know, with your case, what I what is most concerning is that you had five lymph nodes that had metastasized too. And he said, um, we got everything that was there, that we saw. We, um, you know, and I said, well, what about this margin? He said, well, Landis, I'm not concerned about that margin. He said, let me explain why. He was like, that margin is actually very, that backs up to one of your, um, one of your arteries or your, some major vein. I don't know if it's an artery. Um, but anyways, uh, he said, look, this is, this is the situation. Because it had metastasized the lymph nodes, it's likely that these seeds were planted around your body, and those seeds of the neuroendocrine cancer could have been there for years and years. He's like, so don't freak out. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. Don't freak out. <laughs> he put his hands out. And I said, okay, okay, I can take this. It's fine. <laughs> and um, he said, so they've been there for years. And he said, they haven't, nothing has happened with them yet. We don't know where they are, but he was like, we are relying on your immune system to keep these cells at bay. We're relying on your body's own defenses. And I said, oh, okay, that's what we're relying on? And so I walked out of that thinking to myself, all right, well, I'm going to find, you know, two or three other oncologists who specialize in neuroendocrine cancer, um, specifically of the pancreas. And I'm going to find out what they have to say. That's the first part of that. And then the second part of it is, hey, you know what? If Dr. Jarnigan says that we're relying on my immune system and I'm starting to feel better now than I've ever felt in my life, I'm like, you know what? This is not going to come back. That was like the attitude I took. I was like, I can do this. This is fine. But I wanted to hear from two or three other doctors that, in fact, there was no chemotherapy to be had in my case. And I was told that by other major institutions. And so I went with it. And I said, okay, fine. I'm done asking these questions, those questions for now about the chemotherapy and the radiation. Um, but I have many other questions, right? And so I wanted to find my way up this hierarchy. This, I almost see it as this, you know, it, with a pinnacle at the top. And the pinnacle is this, um, the knowledge base of ways to make your body super inhospitable to neuroendocrine cancer. And so I made that intention. I wanted to find, I wanted to find as much information about that as possible. So um, backing up a, a minute, I, you know, had my CAT scans done at the end of October. I had a meeting, the first meeting I, where I met Dr. Reedy, um, the oncologist at MSK, and she um, she said, you know, went through the whole thing again. Like, your CAT scans are clear. Everything was great. You know, um, 
we we want to watch you. We want to have these CT scans every three months um, for the time being, and we're going to see how it goes. And um, you know, she explained to me everything about the you know my my case, my situation, and um, and she said there you know there's no chemo or radiation to do at this time. And I said okay. Well, what can I do? And she said, well, I was just about to tell you. And I said, well, okay, tell me. And she said, I'm, I'm expecting like major, like, like major, major things, you know, mm-hmm. well, I, I'm not sure, you know. Um, and she said, clean eating, meditation, and exercise. And she said, as it relates to exercise, there are positive corollaries between people who exercise and people who this cancer does not come back for. I said, I am on it. That's fine. I will do all of that. And um, then I got home, and I'm like, okay. I started thinking about this more, and I'm thinking, well, I already, I've already been meditating for like 10 years. I developed, I developed my practice a long time ago. Um, but granted, it was never very regular. So I've tried to make it as regular as I possibly can, considering I have three children, and there's nothing regular about their constant needs and wants other than they are constant. Um, and, but as it related to diet and exercise, there was a lot of confusing information out there. And I was, I had already been working with a nutritionist locally who works with an integrative doctor in my, in my town. And, um, but they aren't cancer specialists. So I knew I wanted to find that kind of team as it related to cancer and neuroendocrine. So, um, because there's clean eating means something different to everybody, right? Clean eating could mean you're finding your protein sources, your your beef and your chickens and poultry, all of that. You're finding everything from the cleanest possible sources. Um, or clean eating might just mean to somebody eating only a vegetable on plant-based diet mm-hmm. um, or it might mean macrobiotic to somebody else so I'm like what is this like it, it's so confusing to me so I wanted something really specific I wanted um, someone to do blood work I wanted to kind of dig as deep as we could and so I found a couple of different integrative oncologists um, and I started asking a lot of questions and I found a group in Chicago who I ended up flying out to go see. Um, it's called the Block Center. And I came across that doctor because I listened to a podcast of his that he had done with the Hay House. And okay. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, and not only was that one of his podcasts inspiring, but a number of other ones were as well. Um, and so they put me on a, a, a pretty specific diet. Um, and supplement regimen, and we talked a lot about stress and lifestyle and exercise, and, um, you know, they gave me goals to work against, and so that's how I've been living my life since November. Um, And that's been, Uh, and so that gets you to the marathon, um, was that, so we're saying November. So when you came and okay. saw, saw us at the marathon, so when I now, saw you at the marathon, I had not yet met those integrative oncologists. I okay. had just had the conversations with MSK where they had said diet, 
exercise and meditation. And so I was in that process of finding my next set of information. Gotcha. And I, I think that, so it, it, it's been since just before Thanksgiving until now that I've been doing this, doing this program and, and making it my own in some instances. How has life been since you've been on this program since after Thanksgiving? I, I have felt, I have felt better than I have in my whole life. I mean, my whole life ever. Um, I'm eating so well, so cleanly that if I have anything that is off course, like it just, it makes me feel, I can feel it. I know it, you know. Um, I recently had more CT scans and the stuff that I had to drink and the dye that they put through your veins made me feel really icky for like three or four days afterwards, whereas previously it didn't really affect me. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because I've, 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 I'm feeling so much better that it's very clear to me when I'm not feeling well. Like I've had... I had a cold for a couple of days that I got from my kids and I wasn't feeling super great then, but I also didn't, you know, knock on wood, I didn't come down with a stomach flu that they all had a couple of weeks ago. Um, I haven't really gotten any full-blown kid sicknesses, um, which I usually would, I, I, used, I would have gotten previously. Um, and I'm, I'm running again. I ran a 5K actually uh, on Thanksgiving. Awesome. Um, so that was actually shortly after I saw you. Yeah. Um, I, I started playing tennis again. Um, and I think for me, how I'm feeling is it's the, the barometer is really like the, the activity that I do, right? Um, and how well I'm sleeping was a kind of my barometers. And um, I've, I've started hiking. I haven't hiked regularly since I was probably in high school. And we have a really wonderful um, reservation near our house. And I, go, I try to go at least once a week to try to get out into nature. And just hearing the wind through the trees and feeling the crunch of the leaves or the ice or whatever it is under your feet is just magical. And it's so healing. Um, and it makes me feel strong. And all of that, I think, then boosts right, your wellness and boost your your mental uh, capacity to deal with whatever you need to deal with. And so that kind of brings us back to the beginning of our conversation where we were talking about exercise as not being a form of stress management, but really a, a boost to wellness. And So um, powerful. that I've, I've found that place, you know. That's so amazing. Um, I think, you know, Landis, it's it's pretty, I mean, I've been taking notes this whole time and just hearing you talk and how this has kind of like come full circle a bit here for us, you know, where you were super active and then, you know, going through this journey, just the self-awareness or self-knowledge of, of what you experienced and then to where you are today. I, I, I kind of want to, and I got one last question for you. And then sure. we'll we'll open it up to see um, another one. Just if if you wanted uh, our audience where they can find you, reach out and talk to you more. Absolutely. If maybe there's someone that's going Absolutely. through this as well. But my last question is, what advice would you give to someone who might be listening that has gone through or is going through a similar experience, just like you were back in July of last year? Yeah, 
what are maybe the one or two things that they could do um, or that you would recommend they do in order to kind of help them through this journey? Yeah. Um, I know there's probably a lot that I, you could say, and we've talked a lot about it, but what probably maybe like the one or two most important things? Yes, definitely. I think that for me, I would say the first one is to connect with your inner voice and to listen to it as much as you can and to allow yourself, and this is probably the second one, because I think to connect to that inner voice, you need to sometimes, well, to be able to quiet out the outside, right? And so I think that can take allowing yourself some time to sit quietly um, to connect to that inner voice. And whether that means when you're driving in the car, turn the radio off and just think about what is important to you for that day. Think about what's going to make you feel better. Or if you're, you know, standing in the kitchen and you have the TV off and you're, and you're, or you have the TV on and you're making dinner, turn the TV off and just use that as a moment of, of a quiet and, and almost of a, a meditative kind of practice to connect with your inner thoughts and um, I, I truly think that you find so many more answers on the inside and, and it, they also finding those answers and those guides on the inside help you evaluate all of the decisions that you're faced with the decision to whether to do the chemo not to do the chemo to do the surgery not to do the surgery to go with this doctor to take that point of view to do this diet to do that one not everything is right for everybody and um Using those those tools that that we all have, you know, to repair or to strengthen the relationship you have with yourself, um, I think would be my my biggest piece of advice to people. Awesome, awesome. Last, for our listeners at home, where's the yeah. best place if there's someone out there that is just inspired by your story and they want to reach out to you? What's the best way they can do that? Um. I guess through, I guess through Instagram, I guess, because I don't, I'm super bad about checking email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I really only, I don't ever check voicemail. So this is, now you're learning how I, how I don't manage something. Yeah, so I'm yeah. kind of like, ah, yeah, that's just whatever. That is what that is. If someone needs me, they'll text me. Yeah. Um, I would say Instagram would probably be it. And um, I'm Landis Carey. It's, L-A-N-D-I-S-C-A-R-E-Y. And my account is um, open. It's not a private account. Just, um, you know, friend me there and send me a message. And I would be more than happy to speak with anybody. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Landis, I can't thank you enough for being on the Project Purple podcast and sharing your story of self-knowledge and awareness and and you know what some people may think they're crazy when they have this this voice but your story is really one of self-knowledge and self-awareness and it takes a lot of courage to do that to have that self-awareness and self-knowledge and i think the other thing and i've got it written down here is just the fact that you said no um, and that you still say no. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that because yeah. I know that's not that's easy good. to do. And it's not easy to talk about because people feel like, oh, like, 
you know, saying no is a bad thing. No, saying no is a good thing. And it's actually a really good thing. And in this case, it's actually, um, I would say, a lifestyle or not a lifestyle, but uh, it's, it's a life altering decision in a positive way, being able to say no sometimes. So I commend you for having the courage. So you know, I, mean, we, we, I see it all the time with my kids, right? We give them boundaries, and I kind of the way I look at it is I, I've kind of given myself some new boundaries, you know, in a way, um, or freedom to allow myself to say no. Or I give my, myself the permission almost. Um, it's powerful stuff, Landis. Yeah. It's powerful. So thank you again for being on the Project Purple podcast. And uh, as we say here in the studio, that's a wrap on another story of inspiration brought to you by Project Purple. Mm-hmm.